big thank you to everyone who signed up on Patreon recently. Just got a ton of new signups and uh, want to send you a big virtual hug because it allows me to prioritize this podcast. And if you don't know, anyone who signs up uh, to support this podcast on Patreon gets entered into a raffle where I give away gear from all of my surf sponsors, including Patagonia Provisions, RPM Fitness, and Sector 9 Skateboard. So every month, even if you donate just a few bucks, you will be entered into a raffle where I'm going to give away three amazing items. Also, hey, shout out to all my homies from Sri Lanka. I just got new stats on this podcast, and I realized, uh, I found out that there are a lot of you on a small island off of India listening to this podcast. I went to Sri Lanka once, and I had one of the most memorable surf experiences of my life. I was surfing a point break by myself, and wild elephants showed up on the beach. I will never forget that moment. So, thanks everyone from Sri Lanka. Hey, as always, uh, if you have feedback for the show, if you want to get in touch with me, go to my website, kyle.surf. Not kyle.surf.com, just kyle.surf. Super simple. And with that, I bring you my guest. Jamie Snyder is an educator, writer, filmmaker, singer-songwriter, and co-founder of the Buckminster Fuller Institute. And, as Fuller's grandson, studied and worked with him until his passing in 1983. Jamie has also developed, produced, and facilitated educational programs throughout the U.S., including a series of all-day public events entitled The Dymaxian Lab and The Universe Game. For those of you who don't know who Buckminster Fuller is, he has quite a resume. Buckminster Fuller was a renowned 20th century inventor and visionary. Dedicating his life to making the world work for all of humanity, Fuller operated as a practical philosopher who demonstrated his ideas as inventions that he called artifacts. Fuller did not limit himself to one field, but worked as a comprehensive anticipatory design scientist to solve global problems surrounding housing, shelter, transportation, education, energy, ecological destruction, and poverty. Throughout the course of his life, Fuller held 28 patents, authored 28 books, received 47 honorary degrees, and while he is most well-known for inventing the geodesic dome, which has been reproduced over 300,000 times worldwide, Fuller's true impact on the world today can be found in his continued influence upon generations of designers, architects, scientists, and artists working to create a more sustainable planet. Ladies and gentlemen, with that, I bring you Jamie Snyder. Kyle Cameron here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. Dun 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 dun. Here we go. <laughs> That's the opening credit. No, I guess so. I know. I I, I I I never know how to open podcasts. It's always it's always just so random. Well, that was good. No, yeah, dun, that was. Dun, dun. Yeah, yeah. Um. So, what have you been up to lately? Hmm. Well, 
you know, did you ever see the movie, um, one of my favorite movies, Groundhog Day? I love it. I kind of think that's the, I think that's a very accurate depiction of life on Earth if you're interested. I mean, eventually he goes through all the changes of being, you know, apathetic or being, you know, completely freaked out or in despair or anger rages. And then eventually it's like, you know, I'm going to be here. Why don't I like, I can like, this can be fun. I can actually make things cool and work. And so it's almost like a, we were just talking about it, like a design loop where you keep moving through a cycle and every time around you learn, oh, wait, every time I do that, I'm going to, I can do this. And so, you know, at this point in life, you know, it's, it's like every five minutes of my life, it's not necessarily scheduled, but it's like every moment is an opportunity because not only for fulfillment and enjoyment, but also for, you know, the planets on the rocks. And I guess that's in some ways, you know, that and finding peace of mind or nourishing peace of mind are the big navigational points for me, you know, which is, you know, the planet, life on earth is being seriously challenged. Um, you know, I guess you could say it's like there's a siege on life on earth. And it's, it's not, that's not necessarily people's conscious intent. It's, you know, our human family, it's, you know, it's ultimately ignorance. But the reality is this profound life, this profound life on earth, my God, like, what a miracle this all is. And the state of the art, you know, talk about design, the state of the art of nature. Oh, my God, you know, and so now the human design, which is so backward compared to the state of the art, you know, is sort of like really massively employed and we're seeing the fruits of it in, in ways that are very troubling and scary. And yet, you know, here we are, you know, I feel like, you know, we've watched enough sci-fi movies. So it's like, you like to think you're on the good side. I'm like, you know, enemy, you know, dropped in behind enemy lines and I'm, you know, but I, you know, I just feel like, um, so that's a very general question, but that always informs me. I do, I'm doing a lot of writing though I haven't, I've kind of been in a cycle of writing that hasn't been published yet. You know, it's almost, I've had to do, you know, for years I've done journaling writing and then maybe a couple of de decades ago I started just doing an extra kind of writing which was more like stuff I learned from Bucky. Um, and that has grown for many years to a point where all of a sudden, I mean, I always thought, well, maybe I'm going to have a book someday, but, you know, over the last period of time, it's um, just things, it's like wine aging. It's like where you begin to get a sense of like, oh yeah, like that's really what it is that really motivates me to write about, which is really us as agents of change. Right. Yeah. It's, it seems like you've had the opportunity to, to talk about um, whether they come off as simple or profound concepts 
it's it's um, recognizing the um, the brilliance of natural systems and communicating that to people. Really, what have you found to be um, the most effective ways to communicate that to people? Where you you talk about um, what it is that you're passionate about, and you see that click go off in their mind. Well, you know, I used to for for a decade or so when I was the working with the Buckminster Fuller Institute, which my mother and I started in 1983, right after Bucky, actually right before he passed on and then kind of kicked into action after he passed on six months later. But, um, you know, I did a series of courses for, as it, that evolved kind of organically in the sense that people kind of would come to us and say, well, would somebody tell, you know, we need, we want to do this, or can somebody talk about this? And so you kind of, you evolve a lot by what people request and what the real needs are. But we were eventually invited by what was then Pacific Bell Corporation to develop a series of educational programs that they were going to use in their, um, in their, on-site education because they were basically in the process of offering higher degree education on premises to their 78,000 employees around California and Nevada so they could get higher degrees. I think part of it was they were wanting to get people to retire early (laughs) so that they could drop their payrolls. But in those classes, I found myself talking, you know, about a lot of these principles that I, that, you know, Bucky was all about natural principles. That's just kind of the way he thought. Uh, Sometimes I've called it like principles consciousness. But in terms of effectiveness, you know, you have to, when people see how something can be employed, how it can be used to actually create change, then it gets more interesting. If you can give an example of, of a principle at work around you. Um, yeah, so let's do that. Someone okay. walking down the street who might not be familiar with Bucky's work, uh, how you take some of these um, sometimes seemingly abstract principles and turn them into real life form. Well, let's start with a principle. I mean, or I guess you could say Bucky often pointed to different devices or designs or processes in nature that reflected a principle. So he he was also <clears throat> grew up um, spending his summers off the coast of Maine and was a sailor and was in the Navy. And so, and I spent my summers on an island off the coast of Maine learning about sailing that he taught me about. But one of the, you know, most people don't realize this, but boats, and you know this as a surfer, steer from the back as do airplanes, as do surfers. Um, And so they use little rudders. By changing a rudder at the stern, which is, or the back of the boat, you create a little low pressure that then moves that stern to the side and turns the ship. And in the early designs for very big ships, the rudders, which are quite small relative to the size of the ship, 
they still were got so large that they had to create like a small little rudder at the back of the main rudder so that it would help make it easier to turn the big rudder. And those were came to be known as trim tabs. And trim tabs are these little rudders, and, and Bucky thought this was such a powerful thing because we tend to think if we want to change the direction of the ship, we'll just run down to the bow and push. But if you can imagine swimming in front of a big ship, that's you probably wouldn't want to be there. Um, but Bucky said, well, if you understand how this trim tab works, then you go down all the way to the back, all the way at that last edge of that trim tab, and you just put out a little toe or a little foot, and you create a little low pressure, which gets the big, you know, adds a force to the sterning of that little rudder, which turns the big ship, which turns the big rudder, and then in turn turns the big ship. And he said, call me trim tab. That's what people that's the way people can participate in changing the direction is by these little strategic moves that we each make in our lives and learning learning how that principle works and learning how to you know like learning to surf you know you learn how to how to how to surf that wave and uh, I, you know i think that's one of the most powerful accessible principles because there's i think a you know the world looks so big and the reflex is god you know what can i really do nothing you know but bucky said no 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 you know you don't realize actually how things do change and you can be a conscious participant in evolution by turning you know consciously know knowing where you're moving your little teeny rudder yeah i was uh watching his uh, one of the the documentaries about him uh last night and there was this scene where he's going off on um this amazing rant on a beach and he has oh, this yeah. uh this wooden stick and yes, he's yes, yes. he's talking about um how leverage. leverage he's talking about leverage and yeah. he puts the stick under a rock and he says you know with just a little push from this stick barely it takes barely energy any energy from me at all i can lift this big heavy rock and it seems like that was um the way that he saw the world he would look at a system from just a little bit different way that um that most of us would see it and and kind of see the, those amazing leverage points yeah and and of course, he pointed out in that video, if you actually then try to go up and pick up that rock, there's no way you can do it. So, you know, the discovery of leverage as a general principle, that there are ways of doing things that are much higher performance by nature, you know, just because, you know, it, people didn't put skegs at the back of surfboards because it looked pretty. They put him back there because that's how you could get the most, you know, the, that's the strategic point for placing that leverage that's going to help you to control with great agility that board and turning it. Right, and, right. Uh, and, of course, surfing today is much about radical turns and, you know, just turning all over the place. Yeah, that's what makes the most fun. So, you know, I think this is, so it's not, and this 
you know, I try to visualize these things as much because when we can see how they are physical, Bucky was a very physical guy, you know, it was like, and, you know, build stuff and make things and don't just tell people ideas that that's not going to connect. You've got to actually build something or create a little metaphor, I mean, excuse me, an artifact, as he called it. And so, again, I think each of these little things in in this day and age are so important because I think many people are, you know, confronted with this experience that the world is really in a dire situation, that life on Earth, you know, the world will keep orbiting, but life on Earth is this profound, fragile, amazing thing that's happening that it's like this you know, that's been evolutionarily crafted, profound mechanisms. And, you know, we're, uh, people are, you know, waking up, they, they feel, they can see, uh, it's clear to so many people what's going on. The information is now visible and yet it's overwhelming. There's all sorts of, you know, we go through a lot when we really stop and face the reality of what's happening on the planet. I mean, you could tell me this. I mean, it's like, you know, the fish populace, fish stocks is like at what? 10% or something? I don't know what the number yeah, is. Yeah, it's not good. But I, I mean, think that's like, that's heavy. Yeah, it's very heavy. And I think that one of the most dangerous things is uh, apathy, right? Is that people really, they're busy. They are barely, uh, able to keep their head above water, let alone be effective agents of change in the world. And I think that the message that you're talking about, the message that that Bucky was talking about, is that if you find these leverage points within systems, big things can happen very quickly. Yeah, and I think people, that's exactly it. And, And people, you know, first of all, yes, you said earlier, I think maybe before we started the tape, you know, we're that you felt very privileged, you know, all of us who are sitting in this building working, I mean, we're so privileged. We have food, we have shelter, we have most of us healthcare, Um, you know, we have clothing, we're able to travel and enjoy the planet. There's a lot of people who are like constantly in the most horrific, I mean, this is going on. And, you know, I guess my observation is it's, there's a natural calling to respond to that uh, at a local level, at a community level, at a planetary level, in every way we know we can. But I think there is an ignorance, there is a sense, a reflex, that little things really are just, you know, stacked up against the big things. They really, you know, they have no power, so what's the point? It's just like making an empty gesture to do little things. And so I think as people, you know, I think as we're learning in many different metaphors and contexts, as we're learning to step up and that we can, there are little things that we can do in our lives. Doesn't have to take, you know, you can take five minutes a day and do something really powerful that you'll feel good about. Five minutes is... uh, you know, it's a tremendous amount of time and over time. Right, right. um, You've obviously embodied this concept and I'm guessing that it was 
from your time with Bucky that 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 fortified for you. Sure. Are there um, any conversations that you remember that really stuck out to you back when you were a kid? <laughs> oh, um, you know, many, many, many. Um, I mean, I, I was really lucky. My sister and I were his only grandkids. And because of this island that had been bought by my great-great-grandmother, he was lucky enough when he was nine to spend his summers on an island, you know, off the coast of Maine. And so being in nature, you know, on an island, you have to learn to do things. You have to learn to be handy, you know, because you can't just like call the plumber, you know. It's like, oh, like this broke, you know. So you have to learn about living systems and how they work. And um, so, you know, yeah, there's so many conversations. Let me uh <laughs> see if i i mean I, if i think about them then i won't think of any but it'll 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 come to me i mean one thing i know about bucky that i would say as a general matter was that he lived his life and this impacted me as if what he did made a difference you know, there was an urgency. Even then, he felt an urgency. He called it Earth's, Earthian's critical moment because there was, you know, as a navigator, he could see that all the charts were leading like we are headed for a cliff. And if we don't do something, we're going to arrive at that cliff and that's not going to be good. And it's up to all of us. And and, and there's the, the quote that I, I might be botching here, but that... Um whether humanity arrives at utopia or oblivion, it's going to be this touch and go yeah, race. Yeah, touch and go relay race. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and I was going to say, and as an example of that, to think of, I remember close to the end of Bucky's life, he and my grandmother rented a house in Pacific Palisades, which was right around the corner from my mother's house where I grew up in Pacific Palisades. And... His office, he had been living in Philadelphia, but he, the apartment there turned condo and he didn't want to buy a place. And so his office stayed in Philadelphia, but was like, well, why don't we just move the house? Because he's orbiting around the planet all the time, lecturing all over the world. So I would often take him to the airport from the house in the Palisades. And I remember one particular time getting in the car and I'd, I'd dri be driving and, and so we'd sit down and it's about a half hour drive and he said, Jamie, we have about a half hour. What's the most important thing we should be talking about? And that, you know, that has, that's always stuck with me. That sense that, you know, every one of us, every moment counts. This life is profound, it's precious and we are uniquely here for the gifts that we, you know, that each of us has, and we may not have, we may not know what those are yet. But if we begin to say, yeah, wow, I need, you know, I can do something about this. Like then, then as he used to say, you know, the question people would always ask him is like, well, what can I do? And he said, but I, you know, it's not about me telling you what I think you should do. That's what each of us has to ask ourselves. We have to answer that question for ourselves. What can I do? We have to find our way into that and discover that. 
and it's a wonderful journey and, and a profound journey and a very fulfilling one. And I think it's, it's what's, it's what's going to make or break our success as a planet is enough is as life on earth is if enough individuals, you know, say, wow, I need to step up. This is important. What can I do? Right. When, uh, when you look at his life, he's someone who clearly was able to find what he was passionate about and what his skills were, and he was able to implement those. What do you see as the big decisions that he made in his own life to, um, to come to that and not be, you know, a stockbroker somewhere? <laughs> well, uh, as uh, um, he often talked about this he his first daughter uh my mother's older what would have been my mother's older sister uh was born in 1922 my mother was born in 1927 but she contracted um spinal meningitis and infantile paralysis and died at the age of four and that was devastating to my grandfather. I mean, I can't, and my grandmother, I mean, I can't imagine what a parent would go through losing a precious daughter at the age of four. And it really rocked him. And one of the things in particular was that, you know, he felt because he had already had a developed a kind of an inclination towards building things and designing things and boats and you know little things that he did as a young man and he even started working with his father-in-law who was an architect to they developed a kind of a low-cost way of building shelter that they were kind of getting going but you know when his daughter passed on I think he felt very personally responsible in the sense that, you know, this is something that we, we know enough about this to protect by using, you know, good sanitation and different things. We, the, we don't have, she didn't have to die because we know, we know, we knew enough to address this problem. And I think he felt personally kind of like moved like I gotta I gotta change gears here and I think he went through a very dear deep soul-searching period where he really said look am I gonna stick around because I, I you know if I, I can't I don't want to just my wife would be better off with me out of the picture they could they could get along with their family you know I don't I want I don't want to stick around unless I can do something constructive, you know, that be part of the solution, if you will. And he, in particular, as he later described it, or on many occasions, he really resolved, committed himself to his daughter who had died and to the new daughter that was born. You know, it was really the, the combination because when the new daughter was born, it's like, wow, I got a second chance. Like, so what am I gonna do differently? And he said, I'm going to really give up the idea of earning a living. I'm going to really commit myself to, to solving problems and, and doing my own thinking and doing the work that I came here to do. So that was a huge 
and and he uh, that he he did never veer from that. And what was the problem that he then went on to solve from that experience? Well, he start you know he started in the world of shelter, and that was his natural inclination. And in particular, when my right around you know at that moment when my mother was born, he. He created a, he thought that the future of the world was to create a um, kind of like a mass-produced house that would use sort of building and boat design and technology to create a very resource-efficient structure. And he, and he designed this prototype of this little single-family home that he later called the Dymaxion House and which was never built in that particular form. That was in 1927. They had a beautiful model built of it. There's photos of it and a lot of drawings. Uh, I've actually seen some houses or my travels, you know, that are kind of modeled on that type of design. What does it look like for people? Uh, it's who, a, who don't have if that you imagine the, the floor area is octagonal, eight sided, and it's on a pole. So it's, um, you've got this in a, they look a little like spaceships or something. I mean, it's, it's like a, a, an octagonal or circular like floor area. And it's, um, it is suspended using tension, um, on a pole. So it, it sort of sits like a donut around this pole hoisted up. And um, with using tensional cables to provide low, you know, tensional, high tensile metals is a very uh, resource efficient way as opposed to like just building things like brick on brick in terms of weight. So he was very concerned with weight and performance and, and resources. In fact, in one of his sketches at that point, he said, you know, there's no way that we're going to be able to house a billion and a half people that are going to have to have shelter by the turn of the next century, which would have been 2000, if we build them the way we've been building houses, you know, in neighborhoods in the United States. So um, many years later, after World War II, they did design a prototype, uh, built a prototype full scale of something that was akin to that it was of course the design had evolved considerably and they actually built a prototype at beach aircraft in kansas with the uh the aircraft company there using aircraft techniques and sheet metal guys and it's beautiful that and, and um and but it never went into production which is a whole story in and of itself and, and later that journey kind of it, in a way I suppose part of his life journeys, he made many, like any explorer, he made many experiments and each one he learned and then he moved in a different direction. And it was actually at the sort of the failure of that second prototype 20 years after the first one, when they actually built it, not the failure of the design, but that the sort of business model that was available at the time, they kind of just wanted to release it without all the infrastructure that it really needed. It's kind of like releasing a computer with wireless before there's any, you know, any infrastructure to support that. And, and he was like, you know, you can't 
you can't come out and offer this house just because it looks different, but it doesn't have any of the functionality that was built into the design. You know, he, and he said, and so I, I believe he just kind of pulled the pr- plug on it. But as my mother told the story, he, uh, he went back to his apartment, you know, and it was very difficult, you know, t- tremendous after all the high hopes and apparently article in Fortune magazine and going to be a big success. And he, uh, but he, he said he came home from Wichita and she went one right after he got back. She was a teenager. You know, she, right after dinner, he sat at the dining room table and started doing some calculations and working on drawings and stuff. And, you know, she got up in the morning, he'd been up all, he said, she said, and he told her, he said, I've made a discovery, I think. Uh, and that, that was the discovery about geodesic domes, which um, turn out to be the structure of the molecules and cells and viruses and uh, the formation of the universe. They're all over, but they're, they are the way nature designs structures nature's structural system if you will and so it really opened uh even though the domes themselves again were not mass produced in the way he envisioned it the principles got absorbed extensively um into the way we design and engineer things today and uh and i'm sure at a certain point as he pointed out the domes the domes were used progressively because they were the only thing that had the performance characteristics. So I think the first dome that one of the first domes they built was a ray dome up. I mean, a a dome on top of Mount Washington where they had hundred mile an hour winds and um, it withstood the winds and it was, you know, and so the, I think the, one of the government agencies contracted a bunch of these to put in the early uh, radar stations all around. In fact, you still see these. There's one at the top of Mount Tam, and you see them around these little ray domes. But because they were the only structures that were light enough to be able to allow the, 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 the signals to get through, but were strong enough to withstand Arctic snow loads and Arctic winds, and, um, and so, you know, they really have proliferated where do you see uh that design now uh in the world well you see it you'll if you look around you see it in a lot of places i mean let me think of an example more well first of all you have to understand that again um this isn't about a product it's about a principle bucky you know after Bucky had discovered these geodesic principles, scientists discovered that viruses, if you looked in an electron microscope, look like little domes. Um, they learned that the cell structures are engineered that way. Right after Bucky passed on, scientists, again, were trying to study the, car- the gaseous form of carbon, and they were on you know electron microscope looking at it, and... You know, it's all this triangulated, you see around, you know, you maybe with not knowing this name, triangulated spheres, I guess is a simple way of saying it. But the scientists looked at it, and one of the scientists said, 
oh my God, it's a, it's one of Buckminster Fuller's domes. So they named it the uh, Buckminster Fullerene, and it became it's a huge, major field because it these buckyballs are very fundamental to the kind of organization and evolution of the universe. So, you know, uh, I th- <laughs> the fact that we build structures that are much more tensionally engineered that use tension as a more significant component than pure weight. Um, I mean, you see a lot of tension, suspension. Um, you know, of course, there's there's the Epcot Center as a geodesic dome. I mean, there are big domes all over that have employed these these structures. But again, and I'm sure we'll be seeing more and more of them. But, you know, I think the thing is, to me, it's not about whether you live in a dome, because I live in a nice house that isn't a dome, but that's kind of what was available around here. And, you know, I didn't have money or desire to build a structure at this point in my life. And, um, you know, I think, again, it's these, it's these principles that in design, one of nature's strategies is doing more with less. She always does things most efficiently. And just like that little trim tab is, it's, a, it's, a, it's the highest leverage point on that boat or on that surfboard to turn that. And so that's doing the most with the least. You've got to find that little spot. So I think these principles, recognizing that there are ways to do things more efficiently, that's one of the ways that we can begin in our own day-to-day lives to make shifts in terms of our own energy or, or our own effectiveness or our own uh, physical health. You know, all those little designs, w- learning to do things where we get greater capacity with less output of energy. What are uh, decisions that you've shifted in your own life based off of these principles? And um, I think one way that he referred to it was um, maintaining pattern integrity, mm-hmm. um, right? So principles that it doesn't matter if you're you're looking at a cell or mm-hmm. uh, an ocean or a, a structure, um, they maintain throughout different medians. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, they're, they're all of these, you know, as Bucky would say, you know, all these principles, to be principles, they've got to be true in every case in the universe. The minute we discover, oh, wait, you know, in this area that doesn't work, then we have to modify our understanding of the principle because they're, they're, they're sort of inherent. But, you know, I'll give you an example that's a convergence of a couple of experiences that I find, uh, you know, watching these design changes. A couple, a few years ago, I... In this, having a nice summer vacation actually on this island I was there for a week but it was a lot of work getting there and just a lot of logistics and I probably for whatever reason I was we had been moving houses and so I was really like pushing you know working overdrive and in those days I thought well overdrive yeah that's that's cool you know I can do overdrive that's you know I, when I do it when I need to and great but I, at the end of this trip, all of a sudden, I noticed that I started seeing double. <laughs> it's kind of like, whoa, okay. Blink, uh, blink, blink, what? <laughs> uh, yeah, right. And it was kind of like, okay. And, 
and it didn't just go away. And that that began began a whole journey. Well, it it um, you know I immediately got off the island and went to the doctor, and they said, well, it'll probably go away. And but Josh, you, you know, you should get an eye doctor, and you know. But it was like you know driving back from the island, you know, I couldn't, it was like, wait, how am I going to drive, you know? Two lanes or four lanes? (laughs) Right. And I discovered, oh, I can keep one eye closed and I could see clearly out of each one one eye. But, you know, that was like, whoa, wake up call. What's going on? And, you know, so I went down, you know, and I don't want to get distracted by the whole story, but basically over the course, you know, I, I, I followed sort of the, both the medical sort of process of testing and all of that. And I also immediately had this intuitive call to check out acupuncture, which I never had. For some reason, I had this strong feeling somehow eyes and nerve, you know, the eye is the largest nerve in the body. So I just felt like, you know, what's going on? So I, I met a really wonderful, was recommended to a wonderful acupuncturist and started working to him weekly and you know like any but it, you know it's not i don't know that just the acupuncture you know it's like any it's it's like system how do you heal how do you heal not just like most of western medicine is about sort of fix a symptom you know alleviate a symptom change a symptom design you know, <laughs> you know, there's this whole other thing called healing. How does the body heal? How can we promote healing? And so I remember my acupuncturist one day who also teaches Qigong, um, great guy, Darren Huckle, here in town. And he said, you know, there's this thing called the chi balance. It's like, where's, you know, your chi is like way compromised, Somehow, you know, it's like you've been living in a way that you haven't been maintaining your your savings account, your chi savings account. And I and all of a sudden I went, wow, aha, because Bucky, Bucky was one of the early guys talking about uh, he may have been the first. I don't know. But talking about on the planet, hey, we 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 know how to generate. We got to live off renewable. No, nobody would live off their savings account. You got to live off your income account, and I realized, wow, it's the same thing about the planet as it is for me as a person. I need to begin to pay attention to the behaviors and things that I do that are like building my chi or draining them, and um, and I, you know, to me, ultimately, it. it put me back to, you know, we're so concerned about sustainability. I began to realize that we talk about wanting the world to be sustainable, but a lot of us in our individual lives aren't sustainable. We're living in ways that aren't sustainable. And so I realized, oh, this isn't just, this changing the planet stuff isn't just about out there. It's about what am I doing? And so I began to learn um, all these principles about building energy. I mean, just empirically, it was like learning to surf or something. Um, thank goodness, over the course, you know, two years later, it 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 healed. It got it and touch wood. Um, 
you know, I'm still seeing great, but I, in the process, I learned a tremendous amount about all sorts of like energy wasting that behaviors that I and many of us employ to try to like, you know, for one reason or another, you know, it's like that overdrive, you know, like what? Well, we talked about it before um, we we started the interview, I think. Uh, I discovered the the profound healing capacity of sleep. I mean, and I, and I don't know, you know, I got these, every week I'd go to my acupuncturist, he'd give me a new bag of herbs. He was also an herbalist and, you know, all these Chinese herbs and all, any kinds of herbs. And he'd just create these packets and I'd drink them. So... I don't know, uh, you know, all these factors combined, what really made the difference. But I noticed in the process for a while that when I woke up in the mornings, my eyes for a little while were like I could see. But then as the day went on, they would kind of, I would guess the system looking backwards would get tired. And I, um, they'd start to all of a sudden the doubling up started to happen. And so I, I noticed that, that when I got deep sleeps, now, you know, at that point in my life, I never really thought, well, sleep is sleep, you know, what's deep versus not, you know, it's like, but I started, in fact, for a while, I even told my wife, you know, I'm going to go sleep in the study because I need, I need to like stop early and just be really quiet. And I just kind of stumbled my way into finding, you know, I learned things like you, know, you got to like throttle down before you go to bed. I'm kind of a guy. I'm like I can get very revved up. You know, you start throttling down and you're a little more quiet and turn the lights down. And which I don't. I'm not saying people should do that. But if you're interested, no, they in, should do that. That's well, actually I would say that that's a. But if you want a, a principle, again, this is yeah. Well, that's the point. You know, it's like what's empirically effective. And what I discovered was there was a different quality of sleep that was like, I'd wake up like, oh my God, I'm like totally refreshed. And that's like, wow, that's like, that's real. That's, whoa. Yeah. And so I've learned in the, the last few years, I've actually, it's almost like, again, learning to surf. You begin to learn, okay, sometimes I might not get it. You know, how come I didn't get a sleep last night? What are, and you begin, it's like, and sometimes even though like maybe you think you've learned something, you haven't really. And so you keep making, even though it's like, yeah, mentally I know I should do this, that, and the other thing. You know, you, you, I, you, know, you really have to keep practicing these things to build mastery like anything, like surfing, like flying, like uh, dancing, like Tai Chi. You know, you, you, these are processes, practices. So... Um, that has, that was huge and it's still with me. And then, you know, interesting, somewhere in the middle of all of this, one day, I think my daughter got in a car accident. So, um, she was without a car and so we had an extra car. So he said, hey, we'll just use that and we'll get on with one car. And then Cheryl said, Hey, maybe this is an opportunity to us for get an electric car. And I was like, well, you know, I don't know. You got a, you know, a lease, and I know that we could get into one, but then, you know, now we're starting to make payments every month. Should we do? We want to do that. And at one point, I realized, Jamie, you're being so, you know, because she was passionate. We got to do this. And I, I realized, wait a second, Jamie, 
your Buckminster Fuller's grandson, you know, an advocate of renewable energy, if you're not going to get an electric car, I mean, how can you expect anybody anywhere to make this shift? And so we did. We leased this little Chevy Spark four-door, which we love, and it just it's fun for all sorts of reasons to drive. But one of the things, again, sort of tying into this thing about my eyes is you learn about living off your energy income. So if I drive that car up in the hills, I watch the range and it tells me, okay, well, I'm going up a hill now, so my range is going down more quickly. But the amazing thing about these electric cars is they have regenerative braking and coasting. So if I go up to Bonnie Dune, or you know, my balance will go way down. Let's call it it's like a chi balance. My balance goes way down, but when I if I drive somewhat sanely coming down and I'm coasting a lot of the way, almost all of that range comes back when I get back to Santa Cruz. Wow! Like I've not. So you realize, wait, now that's 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 like living off your energy. Do you know? It's like that's regenerative use of energy. Um, not hundred percent, but so. I started to realize, wow, the universe is showing these same principles everywhere. So that the way that car works, I can learn from that. The way the planet works in terms of our need to shift over to renewable energies, and, and it is happening contrary to popular opinion. It's like, it's, it, it is happening big time on the planet despite whatever the country's gonna do or not do. It's already happening. Fossil fuel is like dinosaur literally and um, but you know it's that you learn that these all these principles are reflecting the same thing you know so all about living off your energy income and 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 learning how to be regenerative in life um, and that's a that's a big deep opportunity for discovery you know it, it must be fun uh, being in your position as kind of this beacon for intelligent systems. A lot of people who I get to sit down with uh, on this podcast are leaders in their field, whether they're uh, researchers for the medical uh, benefits of psychedelics or <laughs> sex therapist or big wave surfers. People always want to talk to them about their thing. And it must be fun to, to live in a world where these intelligent systems are being shown to you um, consistently. Is that at all? Well, right let's on? see. First of all, I'm not, you know, I'm not a big giant success or something. I mean, I'm, I'm a modest fellow. I, and I think the thing that I'm, you know, my, my work has been many fold and I'm much of it behind the scenes on this planet. Well, well I'll, I'll shift the, uh, the question a little bit. Um, what have been intelligent systems that, um, you've seen that you've been really impressed by? Well, how are you using the word intelligent system? Well, I, I guess um, systems that main, maintain pattern integrity, systems that inherently uh, reserve their their chi more than others. Okay. Well, I think... A word, and inventions as well. A word, in, uh, integrity is, an, is a very important word, being true to oneself. Um, intelligent systems, well... You know, the universe is an intelligent system for sure. And um, 
you know, the universe, the universe is the, the grandma or granddad intelligent system. And, and in some ways, um, gosh, you know, it's, it's, it's everywhere. I mean, it's, I don't profess what I'm saying isn't some secret or something. It's like we're, as a planet, we're learning. I mean, this is the, the important thing. It's all over the place. We are learning and I'll, some examples will come to mind, but we're learning at the biggest scale, like this whole transformation that's happening to green energy on this planet, that it's, in the end, when you look at the data, you look at the performance of a windmill, the cost to make it, the return on investment, it outperforms petroleum so far that the only reason to some degree petroleum still exists is that all the, I mean, there's many reasons, but, you know, it's a transformational process, but it's partly because, you know, we subsidize certain kinds of energies and, and we don't subsidize other energies. And, and, and we learn things evolutionarily. I mean, petroleum was a great, uh, you know, discovery that it could be used, you know, um, <laughs> but we're learning that there is this complex, profound integrity called life on earth. And so we see it showing up in the way that we are understanding problems. Um, I'm not giving you wonderful examples to, to make a point at a local scale, but uh, I was just think, talking about with an associate earlier. I mean, there's been this whole move towards evidence-based decision-making. You know, there's so many areas of life where people have done things for years um, a certain way, and there's like, well, this is the way it works best, and then you can have arguments about it. But now that we're in this world where there's tremendous data about everything we're doing, so, you know, so the system, like the prison systems, they actually learn. There's so much data. They can say, well, you know, I, I don't have an exact fact to give you, but they can learn they tell us that, well, this kind of activity post when somebody gets out of jail, they'll stay out of jail versus this activity, which we thought was really good, turns out it doesn't, it doesn't work. So that's intelligent design is you actually then learn from the behavior, just like an aircraft. I mean, it's so funny on earth we have all this kind of opinions about how to design, you know, this, this works. But in designing an aircraft, I mean, people don't like go, well, I, I, you know, I just think it should have three wings. They, they, they have two wings the way they have them because that's what works performance wise. And if they discover something that's higher performance, they'll use that because that's what they're in the business of. How can I, get as fast as I can, Dan, and whatever the other design requirements are, and do it in the most efficient use of energy so I can keep my cost low and whatever other needs are. So we're learning, we're learning that in the world around us, the universe in all areas of life shows, reflects these principles and as we discover them, but in a way, at the core, coming back to your question, you know, it's about systems. It's kind of like you can't, we talk, talked about trim tabs starting off our conversation. In a trim tab, 
So we talk, well, you find that high leverage point. But how are you going to find that high leverage point? And there's a kind of, for me, a corollary principle to that trim tab is you got to look at the whole system. When you look at the whole system, you get a clear picture of the whole system. Then it's easier for you to go, oh, okay, now I can sort of step back and look at the whole system. So now I can see, yes, I think that the, the next most important thing for my health is this. So now I'm going to act on that and I'll see. Let's see how that works. Uh, I didn't expect this to be a theme of the conversation, but sight and the way that we look at things seem to seems to come up again and again. And I feel that it would be a miss to not talk about um, the fact that Bucky was farsighted, correct? Mm-hmm. How do you think that that impacted his life? Well, he he often commented on that, that when he was growing up, he was very farsighted. So he could see the, if I understand it correctly, he could see the farther things more easily than the close-up. I remember him telling me he used to, for the first number of years of his life, he didn't have glasses, so everything was kind of blurry. And he would say, had funny stories about how, you know, people would, uh, he would make up stories about all the things that he was seeing. He thought everybody else was making up stories about what they were seeing because he couldn't see it. So he was sort of a storyteller until he got his glasses. I remember him telling me he could, uh, he used to love the color green because he'd drive through the pasture and he'd just see the green. But that's what he could see. So I think for him, it was about, it was about learning you know, we're so myopic. You know, that was a word I learned from him, myopic. We're, we're nearsighted. We're so much looking at all the details, we're losing the forest for the trees or we're, 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 we're not stepping back and looking at the whole system, whether it's a whole system of my individual life or our community or our country or our planet. You know, what's going on here? What's the data? What are the patterns? What do I see in the big picture? Which then is, you know, uh, goes hand in hand with the discovery of that trim tab. Best example, which I always love about big picture thinking for me, is what something we all know how to do, a picture puzzle. What's the first thing you do with a picture puzzle? And I've done this with my classes, you know, eventually, empirically, though you probably somebody tells you, you just know I got to dump all the pieces on the table and I got to turn them up right side up, even though that might not seem obvious at first. And besides that, you can't have half the pieces on one side of the room and half the pieces of the air because you the only way you can put it together is you see all the pieces in their relationships to each other. Then you can discover the patterns like you know, oh, wait, there's a bunch of blue pieces. Okay, well, let's put the blue pieces over in this area. And there's a bunch of striped pieces. And so you learn these things, but they're unique to each puzzle. So some puzzles, it might be color. Other puzzles, it might be little details. Other puzzles, it might be uh, textures. But we all know, but by seeing that whole system, then we can more clearly see, okay, well, let me... St- Here's my next move. I'm going to start. And so order begins to emerge out of that chaos. But you can't, you can't sort of do the one without the other. You can't discover. I mean, 
you can follow somebody else's recommendation and they say this is where the trim tab is but see that you know that's ultimately not really empirically tried and true for you it's never going to really land until you discover it for yourself right and there are a lot of assumptions that go in that that occur when you're just taking someone else's word for it that oh this is the best way to do it and it seems like that was really one of the great things that that bucky was able to do is is question the premise in a major way around a lot of systems which which ultimately led to the the great impact that he was able to have in his life yeah, well, I th- and I think that is. So every, every one of us, it's just the discovery that every one of us all the time, you know, it's like the big picture and the trim tabs. You know, those are like, to me, the two most fundamental levers of our own journey on life is, you know, orienting to that big picture, never losing sight of it, the navigational side, but then the sailor side that not only knows where it's going, informed by the big picture, but is effective then at finding that most efficient route from here to there. Damn, man. I think that's a good place to end it. Um, <laughs> where can people get in touch with you to learn more about your work? Oh, that's a good question. Let's see. I see this is where I'm not, I'm not up to speed. Uh, I have a little site called trimtabbing.net though it's kind of static right now. Um, but it's got some good information about trim tabs and maybe a little bit about me and a couple of articles I wrote. And um, if people are interested in uh, learning more about Buckminster Fuller, where would you t- uh, well, the, take Well, there's a, a great site, which is the Buckminster Fuller Institute, which I co-founded 30 years ago or something. Um, still here just moved relocated to the bay area and they their site is bfi.org um and there's another site that we're building called buckminsterfuller.net perfect jamie thank you so much for your time yeah great pleasure to be here thank you for the opportunity Thanks so much for listening, everybody. We've got some good episodes coming up in the weeks ahead. We've got Filmmaker, Surfer, uh, Cyrus Sutton coming up. Got round two with the sex educator, Amy Baldwin. We recorded a good one. Until then, as always, you can get in touch with me on Instagram. You can get in touch with me on my website, kyle.surf. But for now, get outside. Go give someone a high five. Jump in the ocean. Have a great day. See you soon.